All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 168, The Fall of Mercia. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now I'm working on an episode on Norse religion, which is actually turning out to be a lot harder than I thought it was gonna be. It's confusing and muddy and kind of all over the place, but it is starting to take shape and I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. So that's what I'm working on right now. And if you're interested in listening to that or any of the earlier members on the episodes, or if you're just interested in supporting the show, you can do so over at the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. And thank you very much to Oliver, Keith, and Emma for contributing already. I recently got some questions about Conewolf and why he kept calling him an emperor. And one specific question was whether or not there was a Mercian Empire. And that's a great question. The reason why I called Conewolf Emperor Conewolf was because he referred to himself in a charter as an emperor. It's significant because his self-proclaimed emperorness predates Charlemagne, which makes him the first emperor in Western Europe since the days of Rome. I wouldn't want to take that away from him. Though, as for whether or not there was a Mercian Empire, that's a harder question. Was he a king of kings? Yeah, it certainly seems like he was. So to a certain extent, that does make it seem like he was an emperor of sorts. But I haven't found any documents where he referred to the empire of Mercia. Rather, it was mostly just Mercia. My personal guess is that I don't think he thought about an empire of Mercia any more than he thought about forming England. These early kings, and emperor, seem to have been expanding Mercian power, rather than forming an early form of England or even an early British Empire. But, since he was the first emperor in the West in centuries, self-proclaimed or otherwise, I wanted to give him his due. I also got some questions regarding last week's discussion of the fallacy of the great man. The questions were kind of all over the place, including one rather amusing one that claimed that a non-great man view of history was too Marxist, but we should take a middle ground since I did have a point about the importance of culture and structure. So two things on this. First, the writings of Marx have very little, if anything, to do with the rejection of the great man theory by historians. And second, this proposition to find a middle ground is known as the fallacy of the golden mean. The middle ground is not always the best option. If you say the moon is made out of cheese, and I say the moon is made out of rocks, the answer isn't, then the moon is made out of cheese and rocks. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? The middle ground between the truth and a lie is just another lie. And if you don't insist on facts and truth, eventually you end up with aliens in your history and Wolf Blitzer in your news. But the basic gist of the questions and comments that I've been getting regarding the great man discussion was that powerful people have influenced history, and therefore, the great man theory has merit. I think that misses the point of what I was talking about, and so I wanted to explain it a little further. When historians say the great man theory is not a thing, that doesn't mean that history hasn't been influenced by the decisions of powerful people. It has. But the point that was first made by Herbert Spencer in 1860, and then elaborated upon by other historians, is that those powerful people were always working within the constraints of their culture and time, and that they were reflecting and being guided by cultural values. Here, I'll give you a concrete example. 
People often say that if they had a time machine, they would go back and kill Hitler. I get that. Hitler was objectively awful. The problem, though, is that Hitler didn't invent the German war machine. He didn't invent anti-Semitism, either. It wasn't like he proposed genocide and Nazi Germany said, Okay, well, I guess I didn't have anything else planned for Tuesday. The culture was already there. If it was just his idea, he would have been that screaming lunatic that everyone ignored. Look at your own governments. I'm sure you can think of at least one official who says completely insane things and has some wild ideas about the world, but they're just off in their own bubble because most of the rest of the country thinks they're nuts and has no desire to follow a madman. Hitler was just reflecting the culture that was growing in Germany at the time. And if he didn't start that mess, someone else likely would have. The cultural push was already there. More to the point, had Hitler been born in any other point in history or in any other nation, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did. It's not just Hitler. This applies to everything. I'll give you another big example. If that completely unlikely assassination of Archduke Ferdinand didn't happen, something else would have triggered the First World War. Europe was primed for a fight, economically and culturally. They were gonna find a reason. The Black Hand didn't start it. European culture, everything from economics, technology, and ethnic rifts, was what started it. That's what we're talking about here. These so-called great men were only able to become important because their culture allowed it. Sure, some of them were fantastic generals or orators, but how many fantastic generals and orators have we seen that have not become influential national leaders? You need more than simple ability and charisma. You need to reflect the cultural mood. You need relevant technologies to carry out actions. You need economic and political incentive structures that create the underlying pressures that demand action. Without the revolution that exploded out of the coffee shops and back alleys of Paris, Napoleon never would have risen so high. He didn't start it. He didn't have anything to do with it, in fact. These men, regardless of what talents they might possess, were running to stay ahead of the mob, and were at best trying to steer it slightly to the left or to the right. That's why the great man theory doesn't work, because these people don't create their environment. They were just selected to stand at the head of it, either through birth, or intrigue, or conquest, or even politics. Make sense? We will continue to talk about these bigger issues about how we tackle historic analysis. So please, if you have any questions, keep sending them. I really do enjoy it, and it lets me know when people are getting lost so I can address it. With that out of the way, let's get back to the last days of the Mercy and Ascendancy. When we left off, King Bjornwolf was reigning over Mercia. Bjornwolf was the beginning of the creatively named B Dynasty, due to the fact that Anglo-Saxons seemed to denote their dynasties by selecting the same first letters for their kids. So Bjornwolf had two kids named Bertfrith and Bertric, a brother named Binna, and it's thought that Baldred was his kinsman. Beyond that, though, not a lot is known about King Bjornwolf. It's thought that he was a distant relative of the original royal dynasty of Mercia, but exactly how he was connected to the family isn't known. What is known is that this was a pretty rough time to be a Mercian. When King Bjornwolf deposed and killed King Cholwulf, it wasn't like everything immediately stabilized. Chaos during periods of transition seemed to be par for the course in the Heptarchy. 
How many times have we seen a kingdom rise to the top of the pile and concentrate phenomenal cosmic power upon a single man, only to see things go completely crazy when that man dies and the power gets redistributed, either to another noble within the kingdom or to the other kingdoms vying for control? Even when mighty King Offa took power, you'll remember that there was a lot of infighting. So, a bit of trouble was to be expected. But it looks like the death of Cholwulf, who only reigned for two years, and the subsequent rise of Bjornwulf was worse than most. Though that is often a consequence when you enact a coup. So it was to be expected. The notes from the 825 Council of Clove show indicate that after the death of Cholwulf, there was, quote, much discord and innumerable disagreements arose between the various kings, nobles, bishops, and ministers of the Church of God on very many matters of secular business, end quote. Bjornwulf was declared king in Mercia. But did everyone agree? God, no. Clearly, within Mercia, there was trouble. And actually, there was also trouble brewing in East Anglia. And there's evidence that part of Kent had broken away during the two-year reign of Cholwulf and had maintained their independence into the reign of King Bjornwulf. Another sign of the troubles that King Bjornwulf was facing was the fact that the coins that were struck in Canterbury lacked a king on their face. That's a really big deal, because it indicates that the instability was so bad that moneyers weren't sure whose authority they were subject to. It's a massive shift from the stability under Emperor Conewulf, and undermined much of the advances that he had given to Mercia during his quarter-century rule. The map was being redrawn, and it was becoming clear that the Mercia of the 8th century and early 9th century was cracking. Honestly, it was starting to look a lot like Northumbria, and not in a good way. King Bjornwolf was in a bad position, and you have to wonder if he was starting to regret seizing the throne. But Bjornwolf had learned from Conewulf, and was setting up his dynasty in a similar manner. He placed his family in positions of power and even placed Baldred, probably one of his kinsmen, on the throne of Kent, becoming sub-king Baldred of Kent. And you might remember that this is exactly how Emperor Conewulf had behaved when he took control of Mercia. It looks like he also learned what a problem Canterbury could be for even the most powerful of Mercian kings. After all, both Offa and Conewulf were hamstrung by intransigent archbishops. So as soon as he secured favorable positions for his family members, he set about reaching an accord with Canterbury. The way he went about it was rather clever. As you know, Archbishop Wolfred wanted Minster and Thanet, and he'd wanted it for a very long time, but it was currently being held by Abbas Quinthrith, the daughter of Emperor Conewulf and the niece of King Cholwulf, who Bjornwulf had deposed. As such, it was unlikely that there was going to be much love lost between Bjornwulf and Quinthrith, and given that Minster and Thanet was powerful and wealthy, she could present quite a problem for Bjornwulf. So, he took the minster away and gave it to the archbishop. Now her position was diminished, and Canterbury was on good terms with him. Two birds with one stone. But Bjornwolf's machinations were cut short when war broke out between Wessex and Mercia. That's a bit odd, isn't it? King Egbert of Wessex has certainly been aggressive lately, fighting against the Cornish and consolidating his hold on power. 
But war with Mercia has been something that he appears to have been avoiding. And yet the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that they got into a fight. Interestingly, though, it doesn't tell us who started it. So it's possible that King Bjornwolf of Mercia might have been the aggressor. Actually, Kirby believes that Mercia did in fact start it, taking advantage of the fact that King Egbert appears to have been engaged in a campaign on his western front against the Cornish. And that would be a good time to strike. The only issue is that King Egbert's campaign with the Cornish is the only thing that would have made this a good time to strike. Everything else that was going on with Mercian politics seemed to point to this being exactly the wrong time to start an elective war. There were issues with Kent, there were issues with East Anglia, there were those, quote, innumerable disagreements, end quote, that were being discussed at the Council of Clove show. Not only that, but it looks like he was already a little bit bloodied, having probably completed the Welsh campaign. King Bjornwolf was in a rough spot, and while a successful war against Wessex might bolster his position, it would be disastrous for him if it went badly. Not to mention that he had part of a kingdom breaking away, and another one that really looked like it wanted to assert its independence. He had bigger fish to fry than picking a fight with the West Saxons. So I think it's incredibly unlikely that he would have started this. Further, Wessex was growing in power significantly, and its king, Egbert, had a rather unpleasant history with Mercia. King Offa had driven him into exile many years ago, an experience that he probably had no interest in repeating. It seems to me that it would be in Egbert's interest to strike at Mercia, since right now it was kind of down. If Egbert could destabilize the Midland Kingdom, he might be able to further break up the hegemony and eliminate, or at the very least lessen, the persistent threat that they posed on his northern border. Now was the time for Wessex to strike. So if you want my opinion, I suspect that it was King Egbert of Wessex that sought out this fight. And at Ellenden, near Rotten Wiltshire, a long disputed area between Mercia and Wessex, King Egbert of Wessex fought King Bjornwolf of Mercia. We're looking at two battle-hardened and incredibly successful kingdoms going head-to-head. -head. They have avoided each other for decades, and for good reason. Both kingdoms were incredibly effective on the battlefield. Why risk everything against a strong opponent when a weaker one could provide the treasure and tribute that the monarch needed? But now, at long last, their armies fought. It has been about 200 years since the Battle of the River Idol but it's doubtful that much would have changed in warfare during that time. Anglo-Saxon battles were still more like large-scale gang fights rather than the massive armies of the Roman times. We aren't talking about battles with 20,000 people per side. We're talking about battles with probably hundreds, and probably no more than 1,000 people on either side. And they still fought on foot. The Anglo-Saxons were an infantry force. This meant that the fighting would have been close, with the warbands fighting shoulder to shoulder. And it would have been personal. The old religion might have left the land, but much of the culture remained. There were still warbands. There were still feasts, where members of the Hearthwarad and others would make oaths to carry out valorous duties, or die trying. The warrior culture was still there. And at Ellenden, it was on display for all to see. High-status warriors would have stood on the battlefield, resplendent in their shining armor, 
likely wielding weapons that had been handed down for generations, that carried names of their own. Weapons that had stories and honor that were all their own, and their bearers were expected to add to that glory. The stakes of the battle were high. If the West Saxons failed, King Egbert very well might be facing another exile, and Wessex might end up under the Mercian thumb. If the Mercians failed, what would that mean for King Bjornwolf and Mercia? The Mercian nobility, many of which would have been present, grew rich on Mercia's domination of her neighbors. But now kingdoms appear to want to break away. If they lost here, how many more would they lose? How long would Essex, Surrey, and Sussex stand with them? How long would Huissa and the Magonseta? Both kings and their kingdoms needed to win this battle. And as for the warriors, they had a lot on the line as well. Not just their lives, but also their honor and the honor of their dynasties. And then the armies advanced upon one another. We're told that they fought ferociously and with great honor. The Chronicle tells us that there was great slaughter in the field, with many warriors being cut down on both sides of the conflict. But in the end, King Egbert of Wessex was victorious. And this was huge. Actually, this is one of the most important battles in English history. King Egbert could not have known this, but it spelled the end of the Mercian ascendancy. Never again would Mercia hold so much power over Britain. The kingdom of Conewulf, the kingdom of Offa, the kingdom of Penda had been defeated and was broken. But Egbert wasn't done yet. The Mercian army might have been defeated, but that was not the entire hegemony that Bjornwulf controlled. So Egbert sent his son, Aethelwulf, whose name you might recognize since he was Alfred the Great's father, as well as the Bishop of Sherborne, the Elderman of Hampshire, and of course, a very large army, into Kent. They were sent to depose the Mercian king, Baldred. And King Baldred and his army did their best to hold back the forces of Wessex. But it was for naught. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle claims that he and his men were quickly driven beyond the Thames. However, according to Kentish documents, it doesn't look like King Baldred of Kent was expelled quite as quickly as the Chronicle says because we see him acting with authority in Kent into March of 826. So he probably wasn't driven out until somewhere in the middle of 826. Though King Baldred was smart when he fled Kent. Before taking flight, he gave some of his lands to Canterbury. Lands that he knew that Egbert would want. When Egbert would eventually take those lands, and he would, he knew that this would lead to a conflict between Wessex and Canterbury. King Baldred was learning how to use the conflict between the church and the nobility to his advantage. And I wonder if there were other nobles who were watching and taking notes. The expulsion of King Baldred of Kent was followed by the expulsion of King Sigurd of Essex, who was... Uh, a person? We know virtually nothing about Siggy so it's hard to say exactly what was happening there. But as soon as Baldred was kicked out, so was Sigurd. But regardless of whether or not it was in a month or a year, by 826, the East Saxons, South Saxons, Kent, and Surrey had all surrendered to King Egbert of Wessex. The Mercian hegemony was no more. 
The new territories of Essex, Sussex, Kent, and Surrey were formed into a large subkingdom, which was creatively called Kent, and it was ruled by Aethelwulf, son of Egbert. Actually, naming Kent was rather clever. You might remember that Egbert was the son of a Kentish king, Aelmund. Consequently, he was likely able to claim the dynastic right to rule over Kent, and now the new king Aethelwulf of Kent had that same right, as he was part of the same dynasty. So unifying all the territories into a Kentish conglomerate would have at least given Aethelwulf the appearance of the legitimate right to rule, if not the actual legitimate right to rule. Meanwhile, in East Anglia, by this point in time, an unnamed East Anglian king had returned to the throne and declared East Anglia independent. This king, by the way, was probably Aethelstan, the king that had been deposed by King Chulwulf several years ago. And while Mercia was weak, after all, they had lost four client kingdoms and lost a major war in a very short stretch of time, we are still talking about Mercia. Consequently, the king of East Anglia reached out to Egbert of Wessex and asked for his protection. And think about what's happening here. Five years ago, Mercia controlled the south, and it had an emperor. But now, they merely held Mercia, Middle Anglia, Lindsay, and the sub-kingdoms of Huissa and the Maganseta. And Mercia's former client kingdoms were turning to Wessex for support. Meanwhile, Wessex, which had been dominated by the Mercians even within Egbert's own lifetime, had pushed now into Cornish territories, was controlling vast portions of the formerly Mercian south, and it was the dominant military power in the region, to such an extent that even East Anglia, which wasn't even a neighbor of theirs, was asking for their protection. Wessex was suddenly being treated almost like an empire. No king of Wessex since Cadwalla had wielded so much power in the south. And that shift happened in five years. But when you look at the situation that they were in, you can see how it had been coming for far longer than that. The centralization of power was incredibly problematic when there was a regime change. Primogeniture was one solution for the problem, but the trouble was that sometimes the firstborn son was terrible as was the case with crazy old King Chilred of Mercia, son of Aethelred, who was described as, quote, gibbering with demons, end quote. Not exactly the best person to be setting national policy. However, without primogeniture, you run into what happened later on in Mercia, and what has been happening for ages in Northumbria. When the field is opened up to other members of the dynasty, you start to see a bunch of kinslaying. And when the field is opened up to other dynasties, you end up with multiple families vying for control and killing each other in the pursuit of it. So far, no English kingdom has found an effective and peaceful solution to the question of what do you do when you have immense amounts of power centralized upon a single person and then that person dies? And because they haven't found the answer to that question, Mercia and Northumbria have been paying the price. Conversely, Wessex hasn't been all that powerful, and so that might be part of why they've been able to dodge the issue so far. Sure, they have had civil wars, and they had that amazing series of heroic suicide charges, but they hadn't hit the sheer scale of power and wealth that Mercia and Northumbria had enjoyed. So perhaps the reason why we haven't seen a similar total collapse is because the incentives just weren't there. 
At least not yet. Whatever the case, right now, Wessex was the top dog of the heptarchy, which wasn't much of a hept anymore, to be honest. However, that did not come without issues. Remember how King Baldred of Kent had given all those lands to Archbishop Wolfrid in a brilliant parting shot to Wessex? Well, Egbert wanted them back, and so he took them from the archbishopric. Wolfrid, predictably, was not very pleased about that. And then Egbert began minting his own coins in Winchester, Rochester, and Canterbury. Yeah, he took over Wolfrid's mint and started producing his own coins there. That also probably upset the archbishop quite a bit. But it seems that Egbert was not that sensitive to Wolfrid's feelings. And I'm wondering if the archbishop was starting to miss the good old days under Mercian leadership. In East Anglia, while they had sought West Saxon protection, it's not clear whether or not it was given. In fact, it looks like it probably wasn't, because King Bjornwolf of Mercia, fresh off his defeat by Egbert, had marshaled his forces and attacked East Anglia, seeking to bring the rebel kingdom back under his control. His forces would have been incredibly weakened by their fight against the West Saxons. After all, the Chronicle tells us that there was much slaughter. Their numbers had dwindled, and those that remained were probably injured, exhausted, and dispirited. Also, East Anglia had been largely immune to the Anglo-Saxon wars because its lands were hemmed in by natural defenses. The Fens, the swamp lands that protected large portions of East Anglia, would exhaust any army that attempted to march upon the Eastern Kingdom. But damn it, King Bjornwolf had already lost Essex, Sussex, Surrey, and Kent. He wasn't going to lose East Anglia as well. Politically, he needed the win. And economically, it was non-negotiable. He had to have East Anglia's mint. East Anglia was, in many ways, like Kent. They were wealthy thanks to their foreign contacts, their flourishing trade, their complex administrative network, and of course, their own mint. And following the loss of so many client kingdoms, the Mercian royal coffers were in danger. If Bjornwolf couldn't pay his war bands, he could find himself exiled or even murdered by his own men. He needed East Anglia. So he took what was left of his army and advanced into the muck and the mire. He would retake those lands or die trying. And he was killed in battle in 826. The remaining Mercians fled home and selected Ludeca in Eldermann to lead Mercia as her king. Like his predecessor, King Ludeca needed the mint in East Anglia. And so he marshaled his forces, forces that were now incredibly weakened after two disastrous defeats, and advanced into East Anglia. We see coins with the name Ludeca on them appear shortly thereafter, so it looks like he succeeded in at least taking over the mint. However, the East Anglians were not too pleased with this, and they raised an army to evict him from their lands. King Ludeca had no choice. He needed this mint. He would have to defeat the army of East Anglia and their so-called king. And so he readied his men and met the East Anglians in battle in 827. And he was killed along with five of his ealdormen. Ludeca was killed so quickly, in fact, that we don't even have a name for his dynasty. Because he didn't have one, there was just Ludeca. 
and now a man named Wiglaf became the king of Mercia. He was the start of the unfortunately named Wig Dynasty. And for those of you not keeping count, Mercia had five kings in six years, and actually went through three kings in the last two. King Wiglaf, though, seems to have learned from his predecessors, and he left East Anglia the hell alone. Having their mint would be nice, but these days, the mighty army of Mercia was probably reduced to a man with one remaining leg and an arthritic dog. But the story of Mercia and Wessex wasn't over yet. However, we are running out of time. But before I leave you, I want to tell you about one more thing that was happening during this same point in history. While Mercia is imploding, Northumbria continues to flounder, and Wessex is devouring her neighbors. Across the North Sea, something extraordinary is happening. The Danes have begun minting their own coins. Their infrastructure and economy was becoming sophisticated and powerful enough to merit a coinage of their own. While Britain's gaze is turned inwards, the winds of Europe are shifting fast. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we have all kinds of communities that you can join. Last week, I mentioned Twitter. And if you haven't checked out Twitter yet, it's at British Podcast. But this week, why don't you check out Facebook? We have a pretty large community on Facebook, about 27,000 people. So if you'd like to join it and see what's going on over there, just go to facebook.com slash British History. And you can find links to all our other social networks on the top right corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>